Hi everyone, my name is Swathi Kala and I'm the managing editor of the Harvard Political Review. Welcome to the inaugural episode of After Office Hours, the podcast which takes you to a different Harvard professor or faculty member every episode. Today we're joined by Professor Jill Abramson, who teaches two courses on journalism in the Harvard English Department and formerly served as the executive editor of the New York Times. We'll be talking about the state of the media industry today, as large legacy outlets come to dominate over local newspapers, and what we can do about it. Hi, Professor Abramson. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Swati. Thanks for asking me. I wanted to start out by talking about the almost enigmatic role that legacy media outlets are playing in our lives today. They're at once the most turned to outlets, the subscriber bases for the New York Times and the Washington Post are higher than ever, but they're also the most scrutinized and the most frequently attacked by both the left and the right. Can you explain why legacy outlets have such a varying character and what that means for the industry? Well, I think they they still have a dominant role in uh, shaping people's ideas of what stories are the most important at any given time. And why is that? It's a great question. I mean, part of it is in the word that you asked in your your what you include in your question, legacy. Part of it is that for a very long time, uh, newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post have been considered really important. Uh, they have big audiences. They've been around for a long time. The New York Times was purchased by Adolf Ox in 1896. Uh, and his idea back then is that he wanted a newspaper that tackled serious news in a fair-minded way, which in many ways is still the guiding philosophy of the times. It's uh, pledges to cover stories without fear or favor, uh, which I think it mainly succeeds in living up to. And the Washington Post was purchased in the Depression by Eugene Meyer, whose family, the Graham family, owned it until Jeff Bezos bought it a couple of years ago uh, when the Post entered a period of financial turbulence. So their influence has a lot to do with the fact that they've been established voices of credible news reporting for a long time. And also newspapers still break by far the most stories. The most important stories are still broken by newspapers, often by the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or great financial, other financial newspapers like the Financial Times or the Guardian. Uh, But the, the Times and the Post get their fair share of important scoops. Mm. I'd be interested to hear a bit more about one of the things you were saying about how the Washington Post has now been bought out by by Jeff Bezos. What do you make of the alliance between legacy outlets? Um, and maybe an alliance isn't the right word. Maybe it's just more of a link between legacy outlets and corporate interests. 
Yeah, well, yeah, the, it, it's an interesting question that has a couple of different parts. One, and Bezos is part of this, is that a number of important newspapers that were losing money uh, around 2009, 2010, were kind of rescued by billionaires who bought them fearing that the independent news media was becoming smaller and smaller. And they wanted to save these important voices of news and information, which is why Bezos bought the Washington Post for $250 million, which is pocket change for, for him. And the Los Angeles Times was bought by a local billionaire too, at a point that it was in pretty desperate financial shape. So that's one model. And then as the, the, the media landscape has uh, concentrated and more and more conglomerate, exist in the news media and among newspapers. Uh, formerly independent chains like Knight Ritter, which was a big newspaper chain when I was starting my career, have been bought out by even bigger corporations, which own you know, multiple chains and things like that. And uh, I just read today that a new buyer um, potentially has emerged for the Tribune Company, which is one of those chains that has gotten bigger and bigger. And then it too hit some financial problems and had to begin selling off some of its holdings. Do you think that ended up changing the type of reporting that these outlets take part in and pursue? Well, thank goodness mainly the answer is I think no. I think that, you know, white knights like Jeff Bezos have turned out to be responsible owners. And to my knowledge, he hasn't tried to interfere or influence the news coverage of the paper, uh, but he's given it a financial uh, runway to grow and restore some of its former greatness. Uh, you know, I'm not, some of the, the, the chains, especially uh, some private equity firms, uh, one bad one is called Alden Capital, which has bought up a lot of distressed smaller newspapers and it's further hollowed out their newsrooms uh, to save costs and that's been been unhealthy. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that um, the current ownership has changed the way in which these papers and outlets are disseminated or their business strategy as well? Do you think that there has been a shift in that regard? The Washington Post under Bezos's ownership has become a technology powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And the Washington Post actually invented a publishing platform that they now uh, share with other newspapers, which have used it as a good digital publishing uh, method. So yeah, the Washington Post 
wasn't known before Jeff Bezos owned it as being a technological powerhouse. And now it really is. And it shares some of its technology, including a really good publishing platform with other news organizations that can't afford to develop new technology themselves. Mm. And on the subject of this financial infusion into many legacy outlets, we've seen that while these national outlets grow, local newsrooms are shrinking or shuttering entirely. Do you think that there's now a vacuum where local news media outlets once were? And if so, where do you think that people are looking instead to get their news? Uh, it's a great question and, and a, a really urgent one because they're in many local areas around the country, there are no newspapers left. Uh, hundreds of local newspapers have shuttered in the past uh, 10 years and 15% of all newspaper jobs have been lost during that same time period. So that there are whole areas in the country that have no news coverage at all, including very poor places like Eastern Kentucky doesn't have any newspaper. There are state capitals that now go without good news coverage. And the reason the First Amendment exists and we have a free press is because the founders of our country wanted a free press to hold power accountable. So if you don't have any press, you can have a lot of corruption and power abuse. Uh, so it, it's very, um, very bad for democracy to have this news desert. Yeah. And what is the role of wire services, such as AP, in the conversation about local news? There used to be more wire services than there are now. Uh, there are now in the, the U.S. two major ones, the Associated Press and Reuters, which is an international wire service. And uh, the AP still has correspondence in a lot of state capitals and cities across the country and all around the world. And newspapers that can't afford to have reporters in all of those places pay a subscription fee to the AP to get their news service, to get their coverage of places that they can't send their own reporters. And they're, they're an important part of the news media food chain. Yeah, so when AP puts journalists in certain places because local outlets might not be able to afford sending journalists there, um, is that harmful to the local media ecosystem or is that something that is helpful to them? Better than nothing. Mm. I mean, in many places, the alternative would be to have no coverage. Uh, and the quality of the reporting for the AP is, is high quality. So that's good. 
And on the subject of community-centered news, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the fracturing of the news industry. We have many outlets whose primary function is to serve marginalized communities and communities of color. Um, what does this say about the ability of traditional mainstream media to account for all of the stories that are out there? Uh, well, I don't think that the, you know, what you're describing as the legacy news media does as good a job as it should in covering uh, marginalized and underrepresented communities. Um, and the reason for that, there, there are a lot of complicated reasons, but I think one is that most of the editors of traditional newspapers are white. A lot of them have, you know, Ivy League or prestigious college backgrounds. You know, a lot of them are highly educated and affluent. And so when they're thinking of story ideas, they, they are not that plugged into what's going on in underrepresented communities. And luckily, I think that's starting to change because really, you know, since the Black Lives Matter movement got going, there's been more attention paid to the lack of diversity in America's main newsrooms. Mm. And how have they been trying to, to go about solving that problem? Well, they, they've been trying to recruit more journalists of color so that they can have those reporters covering uh, news events in those communities. Uh, that 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 that's a good a good place to start. They've been promoting more journalists of color into top editing positions, so you don't have that kind of conformity in viewing the news and deciding what's important. And you know, there there's a discussion within you know, the journalism community about whether, even whether some long held principles like um, ob objectivity are outmoded and should be replaced by a kind of morality about what's right and wrong and making those calls in news articles. And how have, popular outlets been dealing with these questions? Because we have seen a lot of controversies in which this has come up recently. So how have newsrooms been grappling with that? You know, in different ways, but it's caused uh, controversy and uh, soulful discussions within both the leadership and the, you know, main constituents who work at these places. Finally, as we return to the role of local outlets and their importance in this conversation, what is being done or can be done to ensure that these outlets don't close, even as we become increasingly more reliant on national outlets? You know, I'm not sure there's any one thing that can be done to make them not close. 
but there are a couple of things that can be done to try to fill the vacuum when they do close. Uh, one is that there are a number of high quality new all digital news organizations that have started up. Uh, one that I'm thinking of that I pay attention to is the Texas Tribune, where you know you've had political news coverage in Texas was beginning to shrink a bit, and the Texas Tribune came in with a focus on politics to try to fill fill that void. And there are a number of other. There's one in Minneapolis. There. There are starting to be these all digital news organizations. Sometimes they're started by journalists from the newspapers that have downsized or closed. Uh, and that's a good, good thing, but I fear it's not enough to totally fill the void left by all the newspapers that have closed. And can anything fill that void? No, not really. That's uh, at this point why it's such a big problem. Thank you for joining us, Professor Abramson. Sure, happy to, to talk to you anytime. Uh, love that you're doing this podcast, talking to different professors, because I'm always uh, wanting to audit all of these classes that I never get around to. So it will be interesting to at least hear some of the professors talking with you. Yes, definitely stay tuned for more episodes. <laughs> this has been Swathi Kella with the HPR. Thank you for listening and see you next time.